The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. It's right here in Psalm 122. God commands us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes, this is a command. It's a hope, a fervent desire. And yet we know that in praying for the peace of Jerusalem, there are certain Bible prophecies that must happen first before true and genuine peace comes. First, a very false and deceptive peace is prophesied in the Bible. And that's why we need to be wise, discerning, and understanding of the times. Hello, I'm Christine Darg. In Daniel 8.25, there's an important Bible prophecy concerning the emerging man of sin, known also in the Bible, as the Antichrist, who will be the world's most Machiavellian figure. Yet, when he first emerges on the scene, he'll be lauded as a great man of peace. However, Daniel 8.25 tells us beforehand that by peace, this coming world ruler will destroy many. And that's why a knowledge of this Bible is so very important. Who doesn't want peace and security in the earth? Lately, we've seen so many instances of terrorism growing exponentially around the world. And in our lifetime, we've seen politician after politician trying to make peace deals. The prophesied anti-Christian world power prior to the return of King Messiah from heaven will somehow be successful in persuading the world to unite. And this is what Daniel saw in his vision of chapter 8. And I'm going to read some of those verses, starting with verse 23 to 25. It says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully. And he shall prosper and shall practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He also shall stand up against the prince of princes. But, hallelujah, it says he shall be broken. In this amazing passage, we're given some clues about the coming world ruler, that he will be a man of fierce countenance. Literally, it means he will have a strong face. He will be deceptively convincing that he's got all the answers to the world's perplexing dilemmas and seemingly unsolvable problems. Furthermore, this passage says that he will understand dark sentences, dark sayings. The commentaries say that this means artifice, skillfulness and craft and policy, particularly in the arts of seducing men from their faith in God. The phrase dark sentences may also refer to incantations and occult practices. After all, it's very well documented how Hitler was immersed in the occult. 
And in verse 24, it says he'll be mighty. He's going to be backed by the power of Satan himself. The meaning of this verse is amplified over in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul addressed concerns. He said, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and our being gathered to him, he said, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by anybody claiming that the day of the Lord has already happened. He said, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not happen until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul said he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that's called God or his worship so that he'll even set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament teach that through the satanic charisma and power of this man with a fierce countenance, the Antichrist kingdom will accomplish a short period of security and worldwide peace. But then the Bible says sudden destruction will come. You see, his peace won't be acceptable to God because it will deny the rule of the Prince of Peace. The proper worship of the true God and of the true Savior will be outlawed under Antichrist, and allegiance instead will be demanded of his system. True biblical faith will be outlawed as radical and intolerant. But the Bible, on the other hand, admonishes us to seek peace and to pursue it. Jesus himself taught us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In essence, the Lord was saying that happy people have a peaceful temperament and they promote peaceful attitudes in others. Peacemakers are the ones who study to be quiet. They strive as much as it's humanly possible to live in peace with all men and women. Genuine peacemakers don't sow discord among brethren. They endeavor to put out fires of contention. I was in a rabbi's home on the Sabbath in Jerusalem and a verbal contention broke out. And the rabbi calmly responded by describing the confrontation of words as an unlawful fire that had been ignited through words in his home on the Sabbath because of bickering tongues. But peacemakers strive continually to put out fires and to reconcile opposing parties in order to restore peace. Genuine peacemakers shall be called the children of God because they resemble God. After all, God was in the Messiah, reconciling the world to himself. So the Bible teaches, on the one hand, peacemaking is important. It's a biblical activity. I once asked Israel's Rabbi Benny Alon of blessed memory why he decided to get involved in politics and to become a member of the Israeli parliament, and later he became a cabinet member. Why get involved in politics when he could preach in a synagogue or yeshiva or write books? But Rabbi Benny said he wanted to serve in the government in order to save lives and to work toward the minimizing of the shedding of blood due to constant wars. So we genuinely appreciate and pray for men who in sincerity of heart attempt to negotiate genuine peace. Yet having said that, the Bible warns us that a false peace pact will be forged and out of a peace treaty 
a world dictator will emerge who will ultimately demand worship. He'll also demand, according to Revelation 13, 16, that some sort of mark be taken in the hand or forehead and people won't be able to buy or sell without that mark. Well, Daniel 8.25, my main text today, warns that by peace, something that looks very good, this evil man will destroy many lives. So we're properly forewarned that under the rule of Antichrist, deceit will prosper. His politics will flourish through deception by pretending peace and friendship. Through his subtle craftiness, he'll succeed and be able to destroy many unexpectedly. And then finally, he will arrogantly raise himself up against God and God's Son. Well, everyone knows the world's in trouble, yet they keep crying for peace as if global peace can evolve without the return, without the presence of the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Many conservationists are concerned about saving the planet. They wring their hands over pollution, the ozone layer, and climate change. Recently, a prominent British physicist speculated that mankind will have to find a new planet on which to exist a hundred years from now. Like so many scientists, he sadly has no idea what this Bible teaches, that this planet is going to be renovated by God. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. This world is not going to continue for centuries and centuries as science fiction imagines, but history is coming to a dramatic culmination. The history of mankind will not end with the achievement of utopia, but with the stark reality that apart from God and his Messiah, Jesus, there's no future of man running this planet. Jesus gave us very definite signs of his imminent return, and we're living in the midst of many of those signs already, including the main sign of Jerusalem being once again under Jewish control and sovereignty. Scoffers balk at the idea of Jesus' promised return, and they don't even long for his coming. They, in fact, despise the idea of submitting to the rule of Jesus. Their cry isn't Maranatha, a New Testament Greek word meaning, come, Lord Jesus, because they've never believed the Lord's promise that he will return. And in their rebellious hearts, they really don't want the rule of Jesus anyway because their preference is to keep on sinning. Scoffers and unbelievers will be willing to opt for a false peace that can be only temporary at best. In this regard, our times really haven't changed from the days of Jeremiah the Hebrew prophet. In his days, like now, the people kept crying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Jeremiah had continually warned the people to no avail of looming judgments because they had abandoned God. But they preferred to listen to the false prophets who lied and said everything was going to be just fine. They said, peace will come in our times. You won't see the sword and famine. You won't suffer the judgments of God for your rebellion. Everything's going to be all right on the night. But the sword came upon them and their children. And the sword is coming again soon. But most people, including most professing Christians, don't see it coming. They can't even comprehend why the hand 
of God's protection is lifting from our rebellious nations in the West. They've listened so long to much of the one-sided teaching and preaching about a soft God of love and mercy that they don't know that God is also a God of judgments. Now, people the world over are crying for peace and for the new world order to unite the world and bring universal peace as the culmination of history's progress. The coming Antichrist will be heralded as a man of peace and stability. But didn't Jesus warn us that the first sign of the last days would be an increase in deception, a proliferation of false Christs and false prophets? Jesus said, Behold, I've warned you in advance. And Psalm 28 calls them workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but in their hearts there's mischief. Peace and safety, peace and security, these have become modern mantras. But the Apostle Paul warned in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them like travail upon a woman in childbirth, and they won't escape. Rather than looking up for our redemption is drawing nigh, Jesus is coming. Professing Christians are worried sick about health care. People are concerned about the rainforest and endangered species, but strangely not very concerned about babies endangered in wombs. These temporal things are a high priority to a lot of people, but they don't realize Jesus is returning soon. So we don't need another planet. There's going to be that new heaven and a new earth where the righteous will rule. This Bible does predict world peace, but it will be a false security, a false peace before Jesus' genuine peace. Man's false peace will demand that religions conglomerate. Absolute truth will be scorned and compromised for an ecumenical and politically correct religion. True believers will be told, as we're hearing already too often, you're a hater. You're intolerant. You're the scum of the earth. So in Daniel 8.24, we're already foretold that the man of peace will destroy wonderfully. The Hebrew for wonderfully means powerful to an extraordinary degree. Satan is going to be involved and he will evoke wonder and astonishment. We're foretold that the kingdom of Antichrist will stand up even against the prince of princes. And that's a reference to Jesus himself, the prince of God, the prince of peace, who's presently at God's right hand in the heavens, preparing to return. We can only look to the prince of peace for true and lasting peace. But peace for our time was a phrase spoken by British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in his notorious speech concerning the Munich Agreement in 1938. Chamberlain's statement, peace for our time, is often misquoted as peace in our time, which is a phrase from the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer goes like this, give peace in our time, O Lord. And every time I hear that prayer, give peace in our time, chanted in an Anglican service, 
I think to myself, the only way God can grant true peace in our time is for the Prince of Peace to return and rule this world. At best, the petition to God to grant peace in our time should be a prayer for the hastening of the Lord's coming. But instead of watching for Jesus, most of the world is hoping for the false fix of a new world order, some sort of socialist utopia. By the way, the definition of utopia is an imagined place where everything is perfect. The word was first used in the book Utopia in the year 1516 by Sir Thomas More. Mankind has never achieved utopia and never will until Jesus rules from the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. Never forget, the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, you're going to give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be given the throne of his father David and his kingdom will never end. And then the Bible promised a period of a thousand years in which Jesus will rule the whole world at his second coming. And all the nations will obey the government of Jesus while Satan will be chained in jail. And over the whole world, there will be genuine peace. The government of Jesus will be in Jerusalem. The people of this world will then have to come up to Jerusalem and listen to King Messiah and learn how to lead a life in agreement with the rules and laws of God. The passage in the Bible which describes the thousand-year reign of Jesus is recorded in the back of the book in Revelation chapter 20. So there will be peace over the whole world and nations won't wage war anymore. As in the time of Jesus' ancestor, King Solomon, many people will come up to Jerusalem and ask King Messiah to settle their disputes. There'll be peace even in the animal kingdom and the environment as well. And the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. We need to learn from history and take note of the fact that there was a false confidence that peace was assured in Europe prior to World War II. And so we admire Sir Winston Churchill, despite his human foibles. We admire him because he refused to be deceived by Hitler's false facade of peace. And Hitler is the closest thing to Antichrist that this world has seen so far. Hitler envisioned a third German empire that would last for a thousand years. He called this kingdom his thousand-year Reich. That dream, I have to tell you, was a satanic counterfeit of Jesus' thousand-year reign from Jerusalem, described, as I said, in Revelation 20. Many at first were fooled by Hitler, just as many in the future will be fooled by the Antichrist. All sorts of people, such as Chamberlain, were convinced that Hitler was a man of peace. Chamberlain and many other leaders were conned into thinking that Hitler was a gentleman. But thankfully, Churchill was never deceived by Hitler. Churchill stood alone. Almost everybody else misread Hitler and fell into his false peace trap. And likewise, the coming man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, under a pretense of peace, will invade countries. Well, in Matthew 24, 3, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, 
When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? I'd like to think that if we'd been there with him on the Mount of Olives, we also would have asked breathlessly the same thing, hoping for a good answer. Tell us the signs of your coming. But Jesus replied very seriously, saying that the first sign would be deception. He said, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah and many will be misled. Jesus warned that the end times will begin with deception. And I have to tell you, I've never seen such exponential deception as in recent years and months. People are calling good evil and they're calling evil good. And many are acting and talking like they're insane without the ability to carry out sound reasoning. We're living in days of great deception already. We have to realize that from the beginning of the period of the tribulation period, it's going to begin with a false peace. The people's passion for peace at any price will lure them into the snare of the Antichrist. And there's an important verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. It says, when they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come and it will come like the birth pangs upon a woman with child and they won't escape. They'll all be saying, give us peace and safety. And then the day of God's vengeance will come. Jesus's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 takes us from the beginning of the time called the tribulation right on through to the return of Jesus. The first phase is this deceptive and elusive lust for a false peace, which will turn out to be a covenant with death by would-be Nobel Peace Prize winners. But efforts will continually disintegrate into war. The end time period will escalate from war to famine to natural disasters and pestilences, even to the mysterious abomination of desolation Jesus spoke of, the desecration of the temple. And then the last sign will be the literal sign of the Son of Man appearing in heaven and with great glory. It's all beginning to happen and whether they like it or not, many people know the coming of the Lord is near. In fact, references to the apocalypse no longer are mentioned just by crazed looking men walking around wearing a sandwich board proclaiming the end is nigh. Debates about the apocalypse often come up in secular discussions. For example, about the environment. Many environmentalists who are into green concerns talk of some sort of impending Armageddon. Even politicians also make reference from time to time to the apocalypse. For example, Christian American Congresswoman Michelle Bachman caused some astonishment not too long ago when she accused the administration of former President Obama of willingly, knowingly, intentionally sending arms to terrorists. She said as a believer in Jesus, she was nevertheless rejoicing because this meant Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The second coming is at hand. Naturally, for making such direct references to Jesus and the Bible, much scorn by the press was heaped upon the congresswoman. So much talk about peace, so much activity and summits about peace. 
they're all a sure sign of the end. In the remaining days that we have, may we preach the true peace to be procured in our hearts in our Savior's name. You see, when we're born again, we enjoy a true peace, a new freedom, a joy despite any circumstances, and we discover the peace that the world simply can't give us. But in the meantime, physicians and medical people are forever telling us to examine ourselves for any lumps and bumps. But the Bible admonishes us in a different way. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. He said, test yourselves and don't you realize that Messiah Jesus is in you? Unless, he said, of course, you failed the test. But how can we be in Messiah? Jesus said, believe in me and my father's house are many dwelling places and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I will come again to receive you to myself. That's the good news of the gospel. Yet nobody seems to know what news to believe anymore because of the fake news and the dishonest news. But I assure you, there's good news in the Bible. And the facts in this book don't need to be checked. And the source is extremely reliable. You see, many times Jesus confirmed the validity of his own words by saying, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, well, verily sounds King James quaint, but it's literally amen, which is left untranslated in the Greek New Testament. So literally, Jesus is saying, amen and amen, I say to you. And nobody else ever talked like that. You see, amen is usually a response to what somebody else says or prays. But Jesus prefaced his own teaching with amen and sometimes with a double amen. In fact, in John's gospel, he prefaced 25 of his own sayings with a double amen. He didn't have to wait for anybody else's amen because he has the last word. And the doubled amen amen gives extra emphasis. This has been likened to hear ye, hear ye, used by royal messengers or town criers in Old England. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Amen and amen, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over already from death to life. Can you say amen to those wonderful words of life? In these dangerous days, are you on the Lord's side? I want to encourage you to keep looking up and doing the exploits of the Lord, for He is coming soon, and we don't want to be ashamed when He appears. The fellowship of like-minded believers is a precious comfort and strength in these last days. You and I can stay in touch through social media and through our website at exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our electronic newsletter, Exploits. And at our website, all of our previous videos are available for reviewing around the clock, as well as our archive of spiritual articles on end-time topics. We also post prayer points twice a week at our website that will help you to be an effective intercessor 
a watchman on the walls. And so, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. The Apostle Paul gave us the inspiring imagery of running a good race in life, much as these 3,000 participants in the annual Jerusalem Marathon. Lots of things are happening these days in Israel's ancient capital, and we're here with the Jerusalem Channel to keep you informed of the fast-paced events and news through our daily website updates and regular video reports and biblical teachings. To continue this viewer-supported ministry, we need your help. Please become a part of the Jerusalem Channel by donating. Just click the Donate button on our website to give by credit or debit card. You can also donate by check to our U.S. address or our U.K. post office box. We're here to anticipate that one day soon we'll witness thousands running joyfully through the streets of the Holy City to welcome King Messiah.